there's this one moment that sticks out to me from my time living in a convent of elderly Irish nuns in San Antonio, Texas. I'd woken up, and it was maybe like 6 or 7 in the morning. I'm sitting on the edge of my bed, and I hear this really faint hum coming from the floor beneath me. I go down the grand staircase and kind of peek around the corner, and there they are, gathered at the altar for morning mass. I sit down on the bottom step of the staircase, where they can't see that I'm eavesdropping and barefoot, and just listen. It was kind of like if you didn't look around the corner to see the line of walkers and canes leaning against the back wall, it just sounded like a choir of young girls, not elderly women. And this sense of youth, I mean, it was everywhere. It was in the way that they walked arm in arm like schoolgirls, how they giggled with each other or cheered for their favorite basketball team, the San Antonio Spurs. There's some spark there, something that over time leaves other people that somehow has never left them. All those women were standing there because of a choice. And everyone, at some point in their life, is going to make a choice that they will then look back and say... That set me on a different path. That was life-altering. That was big. How do you know if these choices are the right ones? Nearly 70 years ago, a series of choices put two sisters from the west of Ireland on transatlantic journeys to Texas. It's 1951, Cove, County Cork, Ireland. This was the last port the Titanic ever stopped in, and it's also where, over the years, millions of Irish have set sail for new countries. And on a late October day in 1951, five more are about to join them. On the decks of the Britannic, this gargantuan white ocean liner, stands a group of teenage Irish girls. But these aren't just any soon-to-be immigrants. They're going to Texas, some of them as young as 16 years old, and they're going to become nuns. My name is Emma Decker, and I am 23 years old, just a little bit older than those girls were when they stood on the decks of the Britannic at Cove. I actually first met one of them when I was only a few months old. She's family. Hello. Uh, I'm here for Sister Jo. Sister Jo? Yeah. I'm Sister Josephine Murray. I go by Jo, and I was born in Kalia Valdeslow, County Roscommon. I am baptized as Gabriel Patricia Murray. I'm from Collier Banislow, County Galway, County Roscommon, actually. Those are my granddads, my grandmother's younger sisters. They were both 18 when they immigrated to Texas, though five years apart. Sister Jo, who is one of the girls on the ship, today she is 85. And the sister who came over later, Gabriel, is 80 years old. My grandaunts and 70 other elderly, mostly Irish nuns still live in the convent they immigrated to in San Antonio, a southern city of about 1.5 million people where temperatures range from about 22 to 40 degrees Celsius for most of the year. Their religious order, which is called the Sisters of the Holy Spirit and Mary Immaculate, is most known for opening the first free private Catholic school for African Americans in the state of Texas way back in 1888. 
My granddad's path to Texas began at the decks of a westbound transatlantic ship. Mine began in my parents' kitchen one winter break when I was home from college. Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel, as they usually do, had sent us a Christmas card, which my dad was reading aloud to us. And I don't remember who said it, but someone was like, hey, Emma, the nuns in Texas, that would make a great story. And I studied journalism, so I was like, yeah, yeah, someday maybe. But I quickly realized this story couldn't wait for someday. There's less than 50,000 nuns left in the United States, which is a 72% drop in the last 50 years. And within that number, within that 50,000, more nuns are over the age of 90 than under the age of 60. And that's exactly what's happening at my grandaunt's convent. It used to be a bustling epicenter of young Irish women, 250 at its peak, but it now resembles more of a retirement home, and the median age of the women there is about 77. Their stories are dying out right now, and I wanted to know, how the heck did hundreds of Irish teenagers end up in Texas, and what became of that choice? Three months after that conversation with my parents in the kitchen, I was on a plane headed to San Antonio. But first, let's rewind about 80 years. Before Texas, before the ship, there was Ireland. Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel grew up on a dairy farm in Colia on the Roscommon-Galway border. They were two of ten children who were raised in a thatched cottage with a half-door that didn't even have electricity until 1947, when Sister Joe was just a teenager. Do you remember when electricity first came to the farm? Oh, that was a great deal. My gosh, we used to love to see the, those men out on the poles because we knew it was getting closer and closer yeah. to us. And I remember when um, our, one of our neighbors didn't refuse to take the electricity. He didn't think it was going to be safe. And I can still see the poles coming up our field and so delighted that we were getting them. So let's just set the scene here. This is the late 1940s. World War II has just ended, 150 miles from the farm off the coast of Northern Ireland, sunken German U-boats rest on the floor of the Atlantic. At this time in Ireland, people in the countryside still use a horse and trap to get around, and the Republic of Ireland officially cuts all ties with the British Commonwealth. Across an ocean, the first Polaroid camera hits the American market, and the Cold War begins. But in Kolya, these were all just headlines on the morning paper. There were cows to be milked, and on Sunday, mass to attend. There was a deep religion in both my mother and father. I, um, because what I remember, it was one day that, that Dad was standing at the dresser, and he was looking up, up, looking up the field, and he was moving his lips, and I thought that was strange. I must have been very young. And I said, I asked Mama, why was, why was Dad talking to himself? And she said, Joe, she said, you know, um, we have a sick cow. And I guess he was praying that the cow would be all right. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and that's, I think, the kind of, you know, the way he was uh, and the way their, their uh, religion was, you know, mm -hmm. not something that they... Posted, I mean, uh, pushed on us, but it was a quiet kind of thing that we picked up. At the time when Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel were growing up in Ireland, becoming a nun was not a particularly uncommon thing, especially for families with lots of children. Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel had an aunt who was already a nun in a convent in Mount Bellew, County Galway, which was pretty close to the farm. 
They had gone to this convent as young girls growing up to visit, so they were familiar with that way of life and that that was an option for them. And that convent they visited as little girls is the same one they eventually ended up entering. But this was not just any Irish convent. It was not a permanent home for many of the girls who entered it. Montpellier was just a stopping place, practically. And we all knew that. A stopping place on an inevitable path to Texas. This connection to Texas begins in 1888. The American Civil War has ended, slaves are emancipated, but because of racial segregation, there are not many places for these newly freed African Americans to go and get a formal education. To help solve this problem, American bishops in the South put out a call for Catholics to help. This is where a woman named Margaret Mary Healy Murphy comes in. She's an Irish immigrant. She immigrated to the U.S. during the famine in the 1800s. And she's at Mass one Sunday in Texas and hears this plea from the bishops for educators. She's widowed at this point and uses the proceeds from her husband's estate to build the St. Peter Claver Academy and Church, which is dedicated to the education of African Americans in San Antonio, Texas. Now, this was not a popular move at the time for Margaret Mary to be making. Many white people in San Antonio are not happy about this school. The Ku Klux Klan are not happy about this school. And she gets a lot of pushback from the community for opening up this place for African Americans. And because of this, there was a constant turnover of staff. A bishop offers another solution. He tells her, you should become a nun, open a convent, and staff your school with religious sisters, with other nuns. And so in 1893, Margaret Mary goes and she does just that. And she also ends up taking four trips back to Ireland to recruit young women to join her and devote their lives to teaching in the United States. One of those women happened to be a grand-aunt of Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel. And later, a San Antonio connection was also built with the convent Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel enter in the 1940s in Mount Bellevue. This was not some secret. It was known that if you go to this particular convent in Ireland, you're also agreeing to possibly go to America. This didn't phase Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel. We saw the girls, they all seemed happy and uh, were attracted to that. Yeah. At least I was attracted to it. I would say, that that is true. And um, there were some of the young sisters, and they were lovely, beautiful. And then, of course, when Joe went, and um, I don't, don't like telling her this, but I mean, I kind of admired her. I mean, she, <laughs> she has actually told me this. She actually did tell me this a long time ago. Well, you know, there was something in that, too. And, um, and so the desire was always there, was there. So it wasn't so hard to make up my mind. At the time, becoming a nun was considered an honorable thing to do in Irish society. For Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel, nuns were people they looked up to. They were their teachers in school, some were family, and really a kind of regal role model. There was some sort of magic to that place and that calling that they wanted to be a part of. When you guys were school age and someone asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would have been your answer? I don't know how many of us said uh, if I was the only one. Anyway, I said uh, that I would like to be a sister, uh, a nun, but I would go to Mount Bellew. And I guess I talked so much about Mount Bellew 
um, and about going there, Mama said to me one day, she said, Joe, if you, if you really want to go to Montpellier, we are not going to stop you. And that's all I needed to hear. With her mother's blessing, in October of 1951, Sister Joe stood at the railing of a westbound ship. And her younger sister, Gabriel, would follow in her footsteps five years later. And, of course, we stayed so that we could uh, see Ireland. And we stayed um, looking out over the um, railings um, all that evening, all that day, until we could see uh, no more land. My big memory is five of us along looking out, you know, waiting to see the last of Ireland. And that's it. Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel are just two of millions of Irish who have left their home over the centuries. Ireland has one of the largest diasporas of any country in the world. You can't talk about Ireland or Irish history without talking about the millions of people who have left. But there's something that sets Ireland apart from other countries with large diasporas. And that's that at the turn of the century, Ireland's was largely female. By 1900, more than 60% of the Irish who had immigrated to the United States were single women. There's a couple of key things that influenced this mass emigration of females during the 18 and early 1900s. And these are changes that happened in society kind of right around the famine of the mid-1800s, which reduced Ireland's population by more than a quarter. After this famine in Ireland, the way that land was split up and inherited and used by families changed. And because of the ways that it changed, there wasn't really enough of it to go around and to inherit. That land, at that point in history, was an integral part of a marriage. You had to have land to live on, to grow things on, to feed your family. So post-famine economics just couldn't really sustain the early and universal marriages Irish people once had. Another reason is after the famine in Ireland, the influence of the Catholic Church blossomed and became a lot stronger. That had two effects. One of the effects was the way the Catholic Church at the time was structured was pretty oppressive towards women. At the same time, the Catholic Church also encouraged education in the schools it helped run, which drastically increased literacy rates for women in the country. You now have a ton of women who aren't getting married, don't have a lot of viable job opportunities, are oppressed by the church. It's not a great life. But they also now are able to read and write, and they can read the letters that people who have already immigrated have sent home and can understand the opportunities available to them outside Ireland. They also now have this essential skill set, literacy, to be able to survive on their own outside of the communities they've grown up in. So a combination of those things and so many other cultural and economic forces creates an environment that was exactly what so many Irish women needed to say, okay, I'm done. I've had enough. I'm going to leave. And their sisters followed them. Now, these aren't the exact circumstances that caused my own grand aunts to leave Ireland, but they were circumstances that came to fuel and define this generation of independent, strong female Irish immigrants that my grand aunts were a part of. But there was something brewing in this new world across the Atlantic. 
This is Hank Wilson reporting the story of the drive for equal rights during the past year. During the 1950s and 60s, segregation of blacks and whites in schools is ruled unconstitutional. Civil rights leaders and activists are attacked. Sit-ins begin at establishments where blacks are refused service, and thousands march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, to protest laws that prevented African Americans from voting. Nuns, many of whom taught in all-black schools and supported the desegregation movement, marched too. And in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. delivers his I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. We'll one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. At the time of Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968, Sister Joe was helping to integrate schools the diocese ran. And Sister Gabriel had recently been sent to teach at a historically white school that had just enrolled its first black students. Here's Sister Gabriel. When Martin Luther King was killed... I was in Crowley, Louisiana, and I was teaching in a white school. And I was in the the teacher's lounge when Martin Luther King was killed. And one of the Knights of Columbus or something he was came in and he said, Oh, good. They got him. I could. He was delighted that Martin Luther King was killed. Catholic. And what was your reaction? Oh, stop. I, well, I don't think I said anything. I should have said something. I should have hit him. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. And he was a big Catholic man. I mean, uh, belonging to these organizations and probably teaching religion at the high school. But that was his response. Mm-hmm. Never forget that. Did you, as a white woman, a white Irish woman, who was mm-hmm. teaching African-American students and supporting the desegregation of these schools, did you experience any, you know, With judgment that. from that? I had one yeah. woman come in to me to tell me why we, I shouldn't... Uh, that we shouldn't have whites the black children in the same school. And I could not convince her that, that um, God had made all of us equal and that, you know, we should, we're all human beings and we're all uh, images of God. Um, she just found that hard to believe yeah. and to accept. These beliefs irritated some traditional Catholics, and they thought that the nuns had no business involving themselves in social justice. And to those people, what would you say about why it is important for you guys to be involved in that? Whatever there is in injustice and inequality, um, we are called, you know, to to do something. I mean, all of us. Are you Joe and Marion's niece? Yes. Oh, <laughs> no idea. You were here before. Yes. Doing What's an interview name? or something. Yes. What's your name? My name's Emma. Emma. Oh, my and your name? Doloretta. It's like Our Lady of Dolores with Etta. Doloretta. I lived for two weeks in the convent with my grand aunts. And I remember one day I was walking through the halls where all the individual rooms for the nuns are, and taped to someone's door was a poem titled Women Who Changed the World. 
After living with these nuns and listening to their stories of working with minorities, homeless, refugees, inmates, young women, the list just goes on, I really came to understand just how true that label is for them. They really did quietly have huge impacts on maybe not the whole world, but on individual worlds, the worlds of the people they helped one by one. That's certainly not a view I had before I started reporting this story, and I know I'm not alone. In popular culture in the U.S., there's often this stereotype that nuns are strict, conservative, religious pawns. But so many more are also educators, activists, and champions of people on the margins of society who are neglected by the systems that ignore or oppress them. Sociologist and nun Sister Patricia Whitberg attributes this general lack of recognition of nuns' impact in society to the fact that, quote, most Catholic history has been written by men who ignored women, and most women's history has been written by people who were prejudiced against Catholics. Their feats are impressive, especially considering that, not so long ago, women weren't just handed these kinds of roles in society. Growing up, Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel had very few options. Um, a lot of people would go be either teachers, nurses, or sisters for women, you know. To many people, becoming a sister in a convent might sound like the most oppressive of those options. But it actually kind of worked the opposite. While many other American women in the early 1900s were on track for lives of domesticity or oppression, nuns were in a way free from these traditional restraints. They often became influential leaders in the communities they served and had a kind of power and freedom that few other women at the time had access to. What would your mother say if she could see you today? I'd say my mother said, well, I should have done something like that when I was young and I got to see the world. Uh, <clears throat> because she said one time, she said, you know, I'm sorry that I didn't take up the opportunity to go to America when, I, when it was offered. And for some reason, she put it off. Uh, so I would say, you know, uh, she would love that kind of adventure, I'd say she would have, been, uh, she would have enjoyed. Sister Joe was the first of the two sisters to leave from the Mount Bellew convent in Ireland to the U.S., and it was something she'd always known she wanted to do. But when Sister Gabriel left five years later, she was first presented with a choice by her mother, who brought her a letter that said she had been accepted to a teacher training college in Ireland. There was a decision to be made, like, on the spot. Do you ever think about what would have happened if you had gone to be a teacher? Only if, if I were really down in the tops. Yeah. <laughs> but I became a teacher anyway. I, yeah, you kind of got the best of both worlds. You got to be a nun and a teacher, so it, it worked out. It worked out anyway, Yeah, one way or the other. What do you think uh, she'd say to you now today about your life and what you've done? Well, I know for sure she would ask me if I were, if, if, uh, you know, if I were happy. And... Um, did I ever regret that I did that I took this life rather than mm -hmm. a different kind? What did did your dad have any opinions on what all of his daughters were going off and doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Dad was quiet. Um, you know, he, he um, I, you know, he just he would never. Uh, uh, 
I don't know why I'm crying so much. <laughs> I mustn't have cried enough when I left. <laughs> anyway. No, he, he, he would, I suppose, just go, go along with what we wanted and go along with what my mother would want. And when you left for the States for the first time, you weren't able to return to Ireland for five years, right? I think he said, I'll never see you again. And I never did. Dad was sort of quite sensitive and, and um, he knew, I think Dad knew he had a bad heart. Mm. And he would say that. But I think we sort of thought, or I think that, that, he, that he was just um, a little bit hypochondriac, but, but he was right. He did die of a heart attack, mm -hmm. and, his, and many of his brothers did too. Uh, so I didn't ever see him again. Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel were not the first or last in my family to leave Ireland for good. Ooh. Doug, will you make me a cup of tea? That's my mom. Doug. What? Will you make me a cup of tea? My name is Marie Mahan, and I am 56 years old, and I am from Tirnascra in County Galway, Ireland. Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel are my mom's aunts, her mother's sisters. And just like her aunts, my mom also immigrated to the United States. My parents were shop owners, so they had a grocery and hardware shop, which served the community. Um, but everybody else was farmers. And so you're one of five girls. I'm one of five girls, yeah. In your family. And when you were growing up, what did you guys want to be? Well, I wanted to be a farmer's wife. Um, you wanted to be, was that because, was that the only opportunity that seemed realistic to you? Or um, was it just because that's all you, that's all you knew? Because everyone around you was... I think that was because that was all I knew. But you didn't do any of that? No. Why not? What did you do? I came to America. Why did you decide to leave Ireland? You know, I don't know. I have no idea how that came about in terms of, you know, I think I was at home and I was helping... Wait, how, do, how do you not know, though? How? You decided to, to move halfway across the globe. Country. Did someone plant that idea in your head? Were you laying in bed one night and it I just have popped in? No. You, did you watch a movie about America? Like, what? I have no idea. You don't remember? <laughs> I know I sound harsh here. I had never before asked my mom outright why she had left Ireland. And I was pushing her because I just couldn't believe that she didn't have a straight answer. The moment of leaving was one that was so potent and emotional for Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel. Yet my own mother didn't remember what was essentially one of the biggest decisions of her life. I mean, it wasn't even a decision. Like, what do you call that when someone makes a decision that they don't know that they're making? Is, is there a word for that? An accident? Like, I don't know. But then I guess it's not that there isn't a parallel between my mom leaving Ireland and Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel leaving. I was just looking at the wrong generation. Because the forces that really let those Irish teenagers go was not really themselves. It was their mothers. It was Josephine Murray, Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel's mom, 
who presented Sister Gabriel with that choice to go to the teaching college and said, what do you want to do? And I'll support you in whatever you do. And it was Veronica Mahan, my mom's mom, who always made a point to give her daughters experiences that took them out of their farming world and who eventually suggested that a vacation to visit an aunt in Tacoma, Washington might be a worthwhile trip for my mom, who at that point had just graduated from secondary school. It makes me think that sometimes it's kind of better when you're making a big choice that you don't know it's a big choice because How do you make a huge choice if you're so aware of it? Like, that's so much pressure. I guess that's kind of a gift that my mom was given in that she doesn't remember why she left Ireland because at the time, it didn't feel like a life-altering decision. She thought she was coming back. Mom, what do you think are the biggest choices in your life that you've made? Well, definitely coming to America probably making the decision to be a student because that's what set me on this road of, you know, staying longer. You know, I think marrying an American was a big one because that put me on a path that would have been very different than if I had gone home and married an Irishman, you know, because, you know, I think there's certain points in your life you realize how different your life could be you know, um, what if I had not come here and I'd stayed at home? You know, I would be a completely different person than I am today. For me, I've embraced this one where I've married an American, I live in America, I have American kids, I'm living this life that's very fulfilling and very great. But the other one that I didn't choose is in one way, it's still a little bit of a loss. I would love to see who I would have been if I had just stayed at home. If you had been an Irish woman in Ireland instead of an Irish woman in America. Yeah. Who would I have married? What would I have been doing? Would I have had a lifelong career in something, you know? And it's a loss in terms of whatever that life would have been would have been truly me because it would have been the life I was born into and the culture I was born into. And I would even sound different than I sound today. There, I would be, I would be who I was. It's the, the little seed that's growing and it's supposed to be asparagus and it turns out to be asparagus. I would be that person. But um, Which vegetable did you turn and, out to be instead of yeah, asparagus? I don't know. <laughs> A tomato. Um, It was important to my mom that her home become my home, too. I have now spent 18 of my 23 summers at home in Ireland on the same piece of land where my mom grew up. We've both grown up running through the same fields, eating the same Irish sweets, spending time with the same places and people. Just like my mom, I'm a dual citizen of Ireland and the U.S., but I'm not Irish in the way that she is. I mean... As much as my Irish summers and Irish family have influenced who I am as an Irish woman, I'm also American in a way that my mom isn't. I mean, I went to school here. I sound American. The culture and history of this country is ingrained in me and is in many ways a much bigger part of my story than my life in Ireland is. I am only American because of my mother's choices. And because of my own, who knows, I might become something else too. I might end up in a place as different from Oregon, where I grew up, 
as Texas is from Ireland. Meeting up with my grand aunts again, I wanted to know what they thought of their own big choices. I think some people, when they think of nuns or priests or people in religious life, the first things they might think of would be that you have to give up so much. You can't do this or this. You can't have a family. You can't, Mm. you know, all Mm. these things. Mm. Do do you feel that? Do you feel like you've had to give up things? Uh, no, uh, and I was uh, when before you even said the word "give up" came to my mind because I remember one time we were home, and um, Ned Flanagan, one of the neighbors, he said, "It is a shame the two lovely uh, looking young women like you would hide yourselves away." <laughs> and give up, you know. And I thought, my gosh, um, you know, we're not giving up anything. In many ways, we have gained probably a lot of things, a lot of opportunities and, and things that are, that are um, richer, really. But I do remember this. Anne was one year old when I went home in, in 58. And I remember thinking what a beautiful, beautiful baby she was. I, I can still, I still remember that that um, scene. In I was in the kitchen, and I remember thinking that she was the most beautiful baby. And uh, and I often wondered afterwards, at that moment, did I realize I'm never going to have a, a beautiful baby like this? But she was a beautiful baby. Did. Little 12-year-old Joe in Kolya, who looked at her teachers and the people at Mount Bellevue and admired them, did she make a good choice? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that down through the years that I often thought, oh my gosh, um, was that a good choice? But then I look back on my, my life, I, I know definitely I made the right choice, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you have any regrets? in your life, oh, things you would have done differently? Oh, yes, I'll tell you, I am so, I am really very sorry that I didn't take up the tin whistle when I was young because I love it, because <laughs> I could carry it around in my hand. And, I'm, and I always regret. Now, I know if I had to do it over again and if the circumstances were the same, I think that even if I knew then what I know now, I'd make the same foolish uh, decision. That original school started by Margaret Mary Healy Murphy, the one that brought so many young Irish girls to Texas. It's still there. It's now called the Healy Murphy Center, and it's an alternative high school that serves minority and at-risk youth who have dropped out of San Antonio's public school system. Some of the younger nuns still teach classes there or serve on the board of directors. And many of the nuns take solace that when they're gone, the mission they immigrated for, marched for, and prayed for will still live on in bricks and mortar. Women just aren't becoming nuns anymore. I mean, why would they? Because of the advocates and pioneers who fought for women's rights before me, like I look at myself and I don't have just four options. I can go and be just about anything. I think something that I can take away from the women in my family before me is that, you know, I don't know what my version of a transatlantic ship is going to be, 
But I think when that next deep end comes, like my mom and Sister Joe and Sister Gabriel and their mothers, when that next deep end comes, I'll jump. Do you and others in the community think about the future? It's not that I'm concerned about it because what happens if we, if as a congregation we die out, at least I feel that uh, because of the um, impact we've had in society and, and because of the mission that we've had and the people that have been involved with us and are still involved with us, that that legacy will continue. And so if God wants us to continue in a different way, that's, that's okay with me. I'll be gone. <laughs> I'll be in the grave. <laughs> Over the past two and a half years, people familiar with this project have often asked me, Emma, how are your nuns? My nuns are resilient, powerful women. They are bastions of justice and pillars of time. Reporting this story made me ask questions not only of the nuns, but of myself. It's helped me figure out what kinds of stories I want to tell as a journalist, and I've gained a deeper understanding of my family, my two countries, and the choices that have shaped them. This project became the sincerest thank you note and longest love letter I've ever written. To my parents, to my family in Ireland, to my grandfather's field, and to the Galway Bay stones we'd slip into our pockets to bring home. Lovely. We'll see you at the mother house tomorrow. Yeah, bye. On one of my last nights living with the nuns, I was going back to the convent with some of them at dusk, and they were all walking in front of me, shoulder to shoulder, linking arms and chatting amongst themselves. And it was that youth again. For a brief moment, they appeared no longer as aging nuns, but young girls, traipsing through the fields behind the Mount Bellew convent, staring wide-eyed at New York City skyscrapers and joining hands during the civil rights marches with the students they taught. The sky got darker and their silhouettes blended into one, this solid unit that has moved through history together. Eventually, their outline disappeared completely, and only their voices were left on that warm Texas street. Soft and comforting, old and Irish. They have never lost their accents. <laughs> 